Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new episode. Today we have the second part of my interview discussion, rather, with the wonderful Lex Fajardo. Lex, who is from the Schultz Creative Studio, is here to help celebrate Charles Schultz's Peanuts 70th anniversary, 70 years since Peanuts debuted in the newspapers in October of 1950. My God. It is really something to think about. I was born in 1960, so, so for many of us who are of this age, it doesn't. It seems like yesterday, but I'm sure to younger listeners, it's uh, it's eons ago. It's uh, it's ancient history. You know, it, it is interesting. Um, many of the structures we inhabit now, suburbs, uh, developments, um, split level houses. Uh, something akin to television uh, existed then, you know, um, and television bringing us, you know, televised sports and things of that nature existed then in one form or another. And so it's a recognizable era when we pick up uh, those early fanographics collections from the early 1950s and throughout the 50s. It's still a recognizable world. Uh, but as Lex and I talk about, you know, many of the things in that world are now artifacts, the telephone, the landline rather, and uh, a record player, you know, with the spinning record and the needle. And uh, those kinds of little things are uh, distant memories. And we're lucky to find them in flea markets and pawn shops, but uh, they're not something that you find in the average home now. But on the other hand, the structure, you know, of our lives in some ways is very, very similar. But despite the similarities, the surface similarities, the differences between then and now are hammered home to me whenever I watch uh, one of my favorite shows from that period of time. Uh, again, it dates me and I'm a relic, but it's okay. Um, the Superman show from the 50s starring George Reeves. Whenever I watch the episodes in black and white from the early 1950s, my God, you know, that world is the late 1940s. It's like, the you know, a hangover from the late 40s. And all of the attributes of the late 40s are there. And again, some of it's recognizable and we can relate to it, but other parts of it are just so different and so removed from the, the time we live in now. Uh, it does appear to be so ancient in some ways. But when we go to Peanuts and we read Peanuts, uh, it still seems very much, to me, it seems very much of this world, despite, again, those surface uh, accoutrements that tie it to the 1950s or 60s. The, uh, the subject matter of Charles Schultz, I think, is something that transcends time, that transcends uh, an era. I mean, there will be a time when, you know, our architecture is different and the world we inhabit is dramatically different. But uh, the, in in so many ways, the subjects that Schultz deals with in the environments that are so recognizable 
really is is kind of universal uh, because Schultz's interest was not just in the timely. Schultz's interests were in in those subjects, those ideas and concerns that are within us as human beings and the human experience in general, the way we live together, the way we cope, the way we struggle, uh, the way we laugh, you know, um, the way we win and lose, mostly lose. <laughs> anyway, it's something to think about 70 years. It's a long, long time. And uh, yet, whenever I pick up a Peanuts collection, I don't really feel that distance. I feel very connected to those characters and very connected to Charles Schultz. And I think that speaks, that's the true testament of any work of art, right? Is time and how it uh, lasts over time. So Lex is here and Lex is absolutely one of my favorite guests. That's why he's on more than once. And that's why we sit down and when we talk, we talk for an extended period. And this time was no different. And so we get into talking about Charles Schultz and uh, Charles Schultz's Peanuts today. And uh, that conversation starts off this discussion. But just as important, we also talk about Lex's work as a cartoonist. And this show is very much focused not only on history and not only on the great achievement of Charles Schultz and Peanuts, but also on cartooning and contemporary cartoonists. And Lex is one of those, and he's one of the very best indeed. And he's got a Kickstarter for his fourth book, of the Kid Beowulf series, and I am encouraging you to head on over to newkidbbook.com. That's two Bs, newkidbbook.com, and pledge whatever you can pledge to help get this fourth Kid Beowulf book up and off the ground and in print. So I'm going to have a copy in my sweaty hands here. <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to reading it. You should be too if you love comics and if you love comics for all ages in the tradition of Jeff Smith's Bone. Uh, Kid Beowulf will not disappoint you. It's a wonderful, great series of books. Pick up all of the copies from Andrews McNeil at all of your uh, best local bookstores or from online sources. But definitely head over to newkidbbook.com and pledge whatever you can to, to help get that book off the ground. It's a terrific, terrific book. The, the Tarpan Rock, uh, brand new uh, fourth book in the series of Kid Beowulf. And um, I think it will not disappoint you. It's a, it's a terrific, you know, not only is it a great adventure story, it also plums myth and history. It takes us to another world and talk about distant worlds, uh, you know, the world, the founding of Rome, really, and the Romulus and Remus myth. And so it's it's great story with, you know, deep connections to history. And I think what Lex is trying to do in this series is really admirable. And that is talk to uh, talk about history and the founding of civilization and about myth and mythology and its role in that evolution, you know, of civilization. So, uh, and it's, it, it, I know that all sounds very heavy, but it's, it, you know, what's amazing about what Lex has done is how light it reads and how easily accessible it is. It's one of those books you just sink right into rather than, you know, fight to get into. It's something you can sink right into and it, it carries you along seamlessly like, you know, a river. <laughs> so check it out, okay? Newkidbbook.com. Be sure to head on over there. So that that's uh, with that in mind, 
uh, I think we will get right to the second part of this conversation. If you haven't listened to the first part, go back and do that. Uh, but, you know, this is a wonderful discussion between Lex and myself, as it always is. So without further ado, Lex Fajardo of the Schultz Creative Studio and Kid Beowulf and myself in conversation. Well, let me ask you this. When, when you're teaching, yeah. um, and I assume at one point you, you touch on Schultz. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is for, for, you know, these young, you know, 20 something or even younger uh, students, what is their connection to it? How, how did they learn about peanuts? Like where, where are they, where, what's their entry point and how do you, because mm-hmm. in some cases it can be viewed for those that are not, you know, cartoon heads like us as a relic, even though yeah. it's been around for 70 years. Okay. And we're about to celebrate its 70th anniversary. But for that younger generation, I'm always curious, like, well, how how do they relate to it? Yeah. Um, well, increasingly, it's distant from them. And uh, and increasingly, comic strips are distant from them. And uh, I, so the thing I've seen, and I've been teaching on and off, I've taught comics classes since about um, maybe 2004, 2005 or so at Adelphi. And uh, prior to that, I taught a lot of other things. But um, I just began to introduce comics classes then. And in the, in those days, uh, it's hard to say, this 15, 16, almost 20 years ago, some of those things now. In those days, students still had a connection to newspapers. And they might have read the comics with their parents. Um, they might have seen Peanuts collections. They certainly saw the animation back mm-hmm. then. And while Calvin and Hobbes might have been more fresh in their minds as their generation's comic strip, um, Peanuts was there as a kind of you know benchmark that they all knew and loved through, you know, again, the animation and also through their parents. Their parents were maybe a little younger than me, but had um, had read Peanuts growing up and had introduced them to it. So, you know, those kids were talking about kids who were born 16, 20 years ago. They were born in the 80s uh, sometime. Now we're talking about kids that I teach who were born in the year 2000 or after. Right? Wow. And yeah, it's a mind blower, and especially when you get to be my age, you know, and their connection there. They don't they don't have that connection to peanuts that you and I have. And they don't have that connection that even the kids 20 years ago, 15 years ago had because they're not reading newspapers and there aren't newspapers in their house. And right. It's uh, akin to me reading Hal Foster now. It's sort of like, you know, that's how that's my entry point. But anyway, go ahead. Go on. Well, so and then the animation has always been there and maybe they've seen it when they were little kids, but they saw it with a plethora of all kinds of other animation and Disney animation, uh, manga, anime. um, All of that has had a bigger impact on them. They've seen such a wide swath of material and the generation I'm I'm teaching now is deeply invested in anime and manga. Mm -hmm. And their touchstones are really very what I'm introducing them to in the history of comics, which when I teach it is, I have to say, is still focused on the West. Again, I'm a relic, you know, but uh, that'll change. But it's still focused on newspaper comics and the development of comic books in the United States. Primarily, that's my focus. And um, so they, they have no entry point to that. It's vague to them. 
right. the idea of a newspaper is vague to them. And so, uh, you know, if they have a connection to, to Peanuts, it's probably through animation. But they don't, again, the Christmas special, maybe something they see every year, maybe they don't, but it's there in a sea of a zillion, so many other things. Whereas when I was growing up, it was, a, a, and, and still is, the Christmas specials and holiday specials around that time of year, I remember, are Peanuts and Rudolph, right? They came out around the same time, within a year of each other. And The Great Pumpkin. And those are the, and there wasn't a, all of this plethora of stuff. It right. was that stuff. And you didn't have Disney Channel and you didn't have Disney available to you 24-7. And we didn't have Japanese animation. We did have some things on television like, you know uh there was some of the tezuka stuff was was here mm. Kim white lion and astro boy gigantor uh different company but there was some of that stuff but that was on it was kids television during the day it wasn't like the same stuff as having a comic strip on tv you know peanuts the comic strip being on tv was special right dukeberry was turned into a uh, an animated show that was special because it was a comic strip it was it was making that transition oh this is you know, i remember those yeah and then yeah. Uh, Bloom County did it, and and Garfield, of course, and those were always for for the for growing up reading the the funny pages when they got to the to the television. You're like, whoa, this is yeah, say, it's special. It's special, and it was promoted as special. It was only three networks, you know, when I was growing up, and um, you know, it's a whole whole different media world from what these guys have today. So when I teach them, you're absolutely right. It's kind of a distant relic to them. Uh, uh, an icon of something long past and you know when you and i look at it we take for granted television in the center of the room and landlines with phone cords and all of the trappings of uh, and record players and all the trappings of mid-20th century life those are distant artifacts to them too so uh it is a different kind of viewpoint and and when if they do get into the strip sometimes you have to get past again this idea of peanuts as being all warm and fuzzy you know right these images of charlie brown and the gang all smiling and carrying snoopy on their shoulders and you know light happiness is a warm puppy those yeah i know that's the branding the, yep that's the branding and that's not peanuts you know um that's not peanuts at all that's a it's a distillation it's a commodification of peanuts but it's not the strip and and it's and it's so so very much the opposite i know i could go on but that's one of those things that always kind of chafes working at the studio and then you know also you know when your your partner peanuts worldwide sort of brands it as such it's like ah there's just that's just that's such a small sliver of the pie. <laughs> so. yeah, exactly, it's a small sliver of the pie. It's it's not, it's you know it is what it's a it's a vehicle for selling, you know the for selling stuff. I'm not even sure, you know, and I don't mean any anything. I'm just I don't mean any insult or anything to Schultz Studio or anything. But I'm thinking through this and I'm thinking, well, in a way, it keeps the image out there, but it doesn't even really sell the comic strip. No. It doesn't sell the heart of what Schultz created. What it sells is merchandise. It sells T-shirts. You know, it sells a few things here. Whatever things are out there to be sold, you know, pocketbooks and keychains and and whatever, you know, pencils and pens and everything that's got a Peanuts image on it. Um, but it's not selling 
you know, the heart of the matter, which is the comic strip and Schultz's achievement as an artist. It's that's and, and I'm glad in a way that hopefully is removed from all of that. But I mean, to get to that, you have to if you're somebody who grew up with all of these other images, you know, you have to you have to break through all of that to get. Yeah, to the, it's a lot to dig through. And that yeah. and so that's that's partly my not so much concern, just just query from from about your students is like the the um just the the wherewithal to do that mm-hmm. to 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 break through yeah. the noise of the branding and get to the heart of what the strip was all about mm-hmm. um and uh and 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 what Schultz was communicating and that's just um I don't know is that Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Um, but yeah, uh, it's hit and miss. You know, even yeah. Kelvin and Hobbes is distant. Think about that from right. from these guys, and they may have seen collections of Far Side. They they don't know what it is. Right. Um, you know, it's it, and if you get do get a student, and I've had a couple of students who were really interested in the history of comics and was, and it surprised me, you know, with their interests and their interest level. There's a couple, always a couple of kids who are really deeply interested in the medium and, and go the extra step. But the, I'm talking about the vast majority of the students I encounter. Most of them have different touchstones. If they love comics, they're not even reading, you know, Marvel comics the way that, that I did um, or the way their parents even did. Um, you know, some of the kids I'm teaching now are the kids of kids I've taught, you know, wow. um, you know, way back in the day. And um, so their their uh, their touchstones are just very, very different and unique to themselves. And so, for example, I got to tell you this, my history of comics class, it, which was only comics, cl- the only comics class for a long time in, hi- in the history of comics. Um, this semester, a, a history of Japanese pop culture, particularly with a focus on manga and anime, mm. uh, was opened up. And that class is much more popular than what I'm teaching. Okay. And, uh, you know, again, that speaks to the time, you know. And, I mean, that's great. You know, it's wonderful. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad, you know. That's not my area of expertise. So, um, you, you know, it's not what I can bite into, and and but I'm glad somebody's doing it, and I'm glad right. that it's there for these guys because they're enthusiastic about it. You know. Yeah, um, I mean, if you, I would, I would recommend the, because um, my my exposure to to manga and anime is is also pretty limited, and um, I often ask my coworkers uh, who grew up with it, you know, where do I go? What should I read? This and that. Um, but reading, so so this this manga biography of tezuka this 900 page behemoth um it's really my first experience reading traditional manga as one would as Uh you know the um not backwards but just the way it's normally written and it flows really well um Uh other times i've tried and i get a headache and couldn't quite grasp it for whatever the cartooning in this is is really top notch and it's done in a tezuka style by one of his, I think, assistants, mm-hmm. um, and this his story is fascinating too. I mean, he's very much like Schultz and um, a lot of these other cartoonists that we've talked about, where it was just so much in his person and DNA to do this thing. And even though manga existed prior to him coming onto the scene, what he did is no different from what Schultz did for the newspaper comics, and that he reinvented it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and also his his foray into early animation mm-hmm. um and this guy was just tireless and he <laughs> drew uh all hours of the day and and there are these these great stories of of the editors for all the different magazines he was drawing his stories for just trying to track him down on all parts of japan to get him to deliver these pages and they would camp out and 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 try and like just get him to to finish the for the deadline and um it's it's a hell of a story and he just the more i read about him as a person and a cartoonist the um the more there is to to realize what kind of polymath he really was and autodidact and and just great artist um it's a it's a really fun book yeah and um his life story has got to be kind of interesting i i don't I'll be interested to read it if I ever find time to read a book again. <laughs> but I've got so, you know, I've got so many books now that I have to get through. I have to get through. It sounds like a chore. I'd love to get through. I have a, in this totally side issue, but I have this wonderful book about Jaime Hernandez, uh, mm. artist book. I opened it once and I have never opened it again because I'm all, I've, I've been, and it's been seven months now. I've been like, okay, one day I'm just going to, when I'm not, busy i'm just going to get to this book and i haven't been able to find the friggin' time to open the book but that being it's, I, it's honest god truth because i'm busy making stuff or whatever or right. i'm work for school or whatever it is it's just crazy but um that being said tezuka uh you know like schultz and like kirby um it seems to me what kind of and this is the thing i always get to what kind of life could they have really had because they produce so much work they, they must have been chained to the drawing board. And what kind of life story is that going to be to read, you know, because it's <laughs> chained to a drawing board. It's like there's no way he could ever leave. He did so much stuff. How could anybody in a lifetime do what Tezuka did? Because, you know, he did how many pages of manga did he turn out? I can't even. I Yeah. So many. over the How did he do that? and produce all of this animation you know i mean he oversaw a lot of animation but not only that he did personal animation Mm too i've got this great dvd set i don't know if you've got it the uh tezuka's animation it's his personal animation and there's like 60 films on this dvd set and each one is just an exploration of technique and idea and style each one is just another invention and some of them are just so beautifully realized and incredible pieces of work and i'm like how did he do it you know for some people it almost seems like time like there's a, a a way in which time seems to stop you know and they're able to produce within this time that for you and me would go by like that you know and for them somehow it seems as though it's it's i don't know ballooned and they well, have... and he also and he started very young and then he also was getting uh, a medical degree he's a doctor yeah. come on i know <laughs> how can anybody do that he's a doctor and he produced like hundreds of thousands of pages of manga i mean come on it's like it's yeah <laughs> it just blows my mind 
you know. I'll, I'll never forget. It reminds me of something what one of my colleagues said to me at work. And this colleague of mine was a great guy, a great teacher in his own right, and, and also a great artist in his own right. Um, he's had the, had the opportunity over the course of his lifetime to encounter very famous people. He, he actually was in a line and met Kennedy, and he met. He actually had an afternoon where he spent with Muhammad Ali uh, by himself. Actually, it was a morning with Muhammad Ali when Ali was training all by himself. And this was before a fight. And it, was, it was an extraordinary story. And he went, he, he went to this location that was not far from his original home, somewhere in Pennsylvania, where he knew Ali was training. And he drove to it early in the morning. And Ali was there by himself training. And it was like, you know, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning or something. And he sat down and talked to Ali for like half an hour or so. And Ali was just incredibly giving of his time with this guy. And he said to me, you know, the thing about Ali and the same thing about Kennedy was that they there was something extraordinary. You just radiated from them, you know, mm-hmm. just this otherworldliness. And I sometimes I think that that's the case, you know, with people like Tezuka or Schultz or, or whomever, you know, they are where they are because there is something so unique about them. And it's not to say there's not anything unique about you or me or anybody else. There is, right? There isn't everyone. But there's something that shines from within, within this person who has found this place or whatever, you know, this perfect embodiment of the self they were meant to be. Right. You know, if right. you and I got there, maybe we would exude the same thing. But, well, it's sort of like you know when you're making your D and D character and you and you roll for charisma and and <laughs> it's off it's off the charts. That's what these guys have. So. Something like that, yeah. And anyway, but you're right. You know, uh, Te- that that story about Tezuka is great. And and I've read some Tezuka and I always loved it. Found it really you know thoroughly enjoyable and and uh, some of it's really just powerful. And I've always meant to read the Buddha uh, series. Of oh books. yeah. Yeah, I haven't yeah. gotten around to it. Um, there's just so many things to read. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it, it, my entry into manga was Paul Gravett's book. Um, it's a history of manga. And so I, I've read that several different times, you know, to immerse myself in it. But even still, there's stuff that he talks about there that I really, you know, should get into reading. But I, again, I think one of the things that happens also, we talk about this as you get older, people, you know, you realize there's less time in the day and is there, or there's less time to do this, that and the other thing. And you have to be very, you know, you choose the things that you do and you don't do um, accordingly. Right. <laughs> you know, like a friend of mine said, well, you know, I'm probably not going to learn Italian, you know, at this point in my life. And because I've got other priorities and um, 30 years ago, I might have been able to say, OK, I've got the time for that. Of course, the 30 years goes by before you know it. It's all right. shot. Now. But, you know, right. And the, and the, and the trick is finding is, is reconciling with what you want to or have time for. And then and then um, refocusing on, on the things that you, you do want to actually spend that limited time on. Yeah. And that's that's challenging too. Yeah, it it is challenging, you know, finding that middle play, the middle ground, and then, you know, um, trying to live a life it mm-hmm. is things hard. And that's why I hear stories about Tezuka. Now, I think Schultz, you know, found this wonderful balance. You know, I mean, he went to the studio, he worked, you know, a day's work, and then he went back home, right? And, and right. At the end of the day, and uh, um, he there was a way in which he had balance in his life 
um, which is hard to achieve, you know, when you are um, on the still on the struggling end of it, where you've got to, you know, work it at its pace, you know, sometimes just to, to keep stay alive or we've right. got to find time to force your, you know, I have a friend who was a postman for years and years and years. I mean, he, you know, over, I, I didn't think Terry was a postman. He's been on the show, Terry Flippo and Terry was a postman for, you know, a whole life's worth of work over 20 years, maybe it was 30 years and he just retired and now he's cartooning all the time, but he used to get up, you know, at four thirty-five o'clock in the morning, had kids. So, you know, he had to fit that work in around this other right. schedule because, uh, and, and the, you know, uh, in one way it's paid off for him because he's really succeeded within his community of fellow postmen, uh, with a strip called deliver me. And it's really found an audience there that's really just passionate and huge and it's great. I'm yeah. so excited for him. But for years he used to get up and do his cartooning at five o'clock in the morning before the kids got up and before he had to go to work. And a lot of people have to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And everything takes one thing I've discovered is that uh, you can have these deadlines for yourself, but at least from, you know, when I look at my deadline sheet, it's always like, you know, I have these markers like colors end of May and letters end of this. And, you know, uh, and it's always two months later that they actually that I actually hit that mark. And it's and it's just it's not that I'm working any less. It's just like these, it, this is how long it seems to take. Yeah. Yeah, and and because you got other things you got to do, you know, to make a living and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, I mean, that's the benefit of success, and and so you know, nobody could have been prepared for what happened to Schultz after a number of years of success. You know, I mean, it didn't happen to Hank Ketchum, right? You know, Hank Ketchum did not go into. I mean, there was a certain level he achieved, and and then he stayed with it, right? And it's a great level, and I've always been a big admirer of. Ketchum's work, but but what happened with Charles Schultz? He had similar success, but with Schultz, that success enabled something within him, you know, that was there. This ambition, this drive, this this desire to utilize the comic strip as a vehicle for something grander, right? And and it, it so it was a combination of of those things that without that success we don't know what would have happened you know with charles schultz um and and penis but with it uh he was enabled to build something grander you know more monumental and um and deeper in in meaning you know and and that was who could have nobody who hired him could have known that right that well, and that's, that's, you know, there's a there's a, a famous quote that, um, you know, he talks about that when when UFS gives him the contract, he he says, like, these guys didn't know that they hired a fanatic. They didn't yeah. know that this was this was a, a, a career that he was going to um, that, uh, the, you know, pursue for the rest of his lifetime. They had no idea. But Schultz knew. Yeah, but, Schultz. but you're right. He didn't know what it would lead to. Yeah. Or yeah. the, the depths he would plumb, or exactly. Right. I mean, he didn't know it. I mean, as people have pointed out quite rightly, that first comic strip, you know, indicates a certain attitude that's distinct, you know, although, and, and maybe you could look at it and, and see, you know, the possibilities therein, but it's hard, really. It's easy to do it, you know, right. from hindsight, but it's very hard to go back and imagine what what that was going to become. 
But you're right. You know, Schultz knew he had something. He also had that drive, right? He had that competitive drive. Every day he'd read the comics page and he he would look at the comics page for who won that day, you know, in right. terms of who had the best comic. And every day he was going to be, you know, it, it was his determination to have the best comic on that page every day. Uh, you know, that's, that's a tough standard to live up to. But um, yeah. You know, and I often wonder, you know, now that we have the museum, which, you know, they had plans for prior to his death. And he, I, I believe, you know, gave his blessing and thought it was a an odd notion, but wasn't going to say, wasn't going to, you know, mm-hmm. um, put the kibosh on it. But, you know, the idea, going back to what we were talking about, Liechtenstein and, and sort of the the, the idea of, of a, an original piece of art um, mm-hmm. versus the printed page. And like, what would he think about having these strips that that once he was done with them and they went to the printer that was that was their completed form but now we're re-examining them in a in a museum setting because mm-hmm. uh, you know they're oftentimes i'll read interviews with him um there's a great one that he did with gary groth and there's like this tug of war between between him as the artist and really valuing the the, the work that he did mm-hmm. and at the same time this commercial component of like well it's a comic strip and it, you know, you read it with your Cheerios and like there's, there's never a, a clear reconciliation between those, that tug of war, which I think we probably all feel as cartoonists because otherwise, why would we, why would we spend hours at the drawing board mm-hmm. to have something thrown away at the end of the day? But it's there. And I always wonder like, how would he, what would he think about seeing his artwork up on the wall like that? Yeah, it's a good question. He, well, he, like any artist, I think he would probably have a lot of criticisms of what he'd done. You know, I mean, as a great artist, you're probably, you know, he's probably never satisfied with what he did. Although, also balancing that with a certain amount of pride, you know, what mm-hmm. he, so he'd probably not look at it the way anybody else looks at it, and and you know, look at it and and say, oh, I should have done better that day. Right. Or, you know, oh, I remember this one. I really liked that one. You know, things le- along the, that line. But at the same time, uh, yeah, maybe he would have been embarrassed by it. I don't know. Uh, you know, the comic, I think he was very comfortable with the manifestations of the comic strip in whatever form they took while he was alive. Because, and again, you know, I didn't know him. I'm just guessing based on what I've read. But mm-hmm. uh, he was very comfortable with what the comic strip was as a medium and what it, what its variations were in print and otherwise. And so I think that that was something that he was prepared for and understood and accepted and was pleased with. Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. As far as showing the work on the wall, yeah, that might strike him as a little bit odd, uh, because to him it was stuff that could be easily thrown away too um but at the same time you're right as an artist he loved the line right and um, right 
and it meant a lot to him uh, that line and the quality of the line and uh so you know it's kind of it's interesting um the the i i think too you know this is one thing i think that's kind of i don't know whether an artist like that would become accustomed to it or not but the when something becomes a museum piece you know means it's sort of an artifact it means Mm -hmm. you know no longer alive in a way it's it's become part of history and i don't know if he ever would have wanted to think about peanuts as part of history you know, in the sense that it was something past. Yeah. Um, yeah, because for him, it was always the next, the next yeah. strip to do. The next strip. Yeah. The next forward. I think that it's evidenced by the, the idea that when he signs a strip to somebody, he's yeah, signing over the artwork. So it's like, yeah, um, he's <laughs> thinking about keeping the strip or worried about keeping it, and he used to send them off to lots of people, right? And, right. Uh, you know, and fold them in half for gosh sakes. Right. Right. They're all well, they were, yeah, it's so big. I don't think they would fit in the envelope otherwise. But that's true. It's sort of like it's production art, you know, yeah. exactly the way a lot of people thought about production. art, And this is true, you know, of the comics pages, too. You know, um, when artists turned in their work at Marvel and DC back in the day, that work didn't go back to them. You know, the company kept it. And a lot of times if the closet got too full, they'd just trash it, you know. Right. And it was only what was it? Who is who were the guys who were going through the dumpster? Uh, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman or somebody uh, who <laughs> found all of these originals that were being tossed out and just said, "Hey, can we keep these?" You know, and somebody said, "Yeah, sure, whatever." You know, it was all Sal, Saul Brodsky or well, I don't know what the, the exact right. details of the story were, but you know, I mean, people didn't value it then, and, and I don't know how the artists felt about that because. You know, when you look at a Wally Wood page or you look at a Jack Kirby page or Gene Colan or any of those guys, they put their life's blood on those pages. Right. And then not to get them back and to have them thrown away, you know. Or the, the animators who that they wiped the, the acetate away. Yeah. That the, they had to reuse the cell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, how do you. And, and then, of course, you know, out of that period after that period with the comic con came the idea where you know it was valuable worth money and now you spend you can spend one hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars trying to buy a jack kirby mm-hmm. and original and uh, it's a whole different world that kirby would have like i mean think of what that money could have meant to him you know right uh, but he never got to see it and uh, uh so did same with so many uh, of those that generation of guys um you know it's a totally different mindset again that we have today regarding it's like trying to get back to where they were versus where we are now you know um it's impossible to do so trying to figure out what they might have thought it's always kind of a lose losing some game i guess yeah no that's true yeah so um you we've got this the peanuts book here uh, that's coming out, which uh, is a celebration of the, as it says in the title, a visual history of the iconic comic strip. Uh, and that's kind of a celebration of the 70th anniversary mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And you had something to do with putting this book together, right? Oh, very much on the, uh, the don't the, in the, the quote, don't pay attention to that man behind the curtain kind of way. Um, yeah. yeah. This is a book that's, that's published by Dorling Kindersley, mm-hmm. who I think, if you've seen their books, you know they're they're those those really kind of nice, highly produced, um, chock full, almost encyclopedic approaches to 
to the source material. And and we've wanted to do a book with DK for a while um, that highlighted uh, the strip. And so this one came our way. And we've been working on it for for some some time. It's written by um, Simon Beercroft, who has done I think a Lego book and some others. And and he really had a great love and and unique approach to to tackling Schultz's work um so for so my my you know I had I had the luxury of of seeing all that early material come through and and just sort of you know helping um point them to great pieces of art at the museum or putting them in touch with you know the 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 right sources and and just sort of getting the getting the 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 backstory of all these things and and you know helping it along to to its final form um but there's great material in here that i think a lot of books have not actually published before so we're, I mean, we're excited to reveal that to to fans um and i think it came together really nicely well um so the the structure of the book is along the lines of i mean there's a lot of reproductions and it's a chronological well it's not entirely chronological there's timelines mm-hmm. uh, within it that are nicely illustrated timelines and the just to say that the the way the book is laid out it's a very accessible book like in the way of the best coffee table books or yes or a tashin book it's like a, a lot of large text a lot of quotes taken out of context a lot of um you know small blurbs around the material uh, and the topics throughout but it's broken down into a series of segments um, around different specific topics. Um, uh, for example, you know, um, the working methods. There's a section called Born to Draw, and working methods and, and original artwork go into, uh, you know, the pen nibs <laughs> right. that Charles Schultz used. And the, the office uh, is drawing board, and, and there's a the photograph of the recreation at the museum and a photograph of Charles Schultz at the drawing board sometimes in the 1960s and a lot of great photographs like that throughout the book. Yeah. It's actually the sort of book that, that um, I would give to that generation. Who's like we, we talked about before that, that doesn't have the right or the, the same entry points of peanuts that, that we have. This is the sort of thing like, well, here's a primer. Yeah. This is going to get you started. This is going to sh- introduce you to the characters, give you the breadth of the stuff. And if you like what's here, then go to then you know you can you can feel confident about anywhere else you you'd want to go. Whether it's the Chip Kid um, deep dive into the into the pen line, or if you want to tackle the twenty six books from from the Fanographics complete series, mm-hmm. um, this is this is one of those uh, as you say it's it's uh, highly accessible. And that was sort of the intent, just sort of like hey. You never heard of peanuts? Here's this this um, this look at it. Um, yeah, and that's what I, I like about it is that you can pick it up. You don't have to read it uh, page by page. All you can just take a section at a time and right. open it up. And here's good old Charlie Brown, and it talks about who Charlie Brown is as a character, and it goes through. I love this little bit called the originals. You know, mm-hmm. you know which talks about uh, the original characters um, from the strip from the fifties. In early 60s, you know, Lucy and Linus and Schroeder and Sally and Pigpen and, you know, all even good old Charlotte Brown is in there. Oh, uh, yeah. There, that, okay. A little story about that, because oh, okay. um, uh, the original layout, um, they really wanted to give Charlotte Brown a double page spread. 
And I kept kind of going back and forth with her. I'm like, well, she's she doesn't she's an interesting anecdote. She doesn't deserve a double page spread because it's going to give her more weight as a character than she yeah. really truly deserves. And so. Yeah. That was a real tug of war because that because they really fell in love with Charlotte and her story and the and the and the the letter that they've reproduced that that Schultz wrote back to a fan who just despised Charlotte and wanted her out of the strip and so he he drew this little sketch of of her getting the axe quite literally um, so there were some little you know little moments of uh, of um, editorial back and forth to like yes we want Charlotte <laughs> Braun in the book but let's let's balance her the way that she needs to be. So, yeah, you know, she's just a blip really. She's a footnote. Right. Really, you know, in, in comparison to so many other things, um, you know, there are wonderful little segments here, the round headed kid, you know, Snoopy calls him that round headed kid and right. the happy dance. I'm just flipping through the book right now. Oh, I always loved, you know, and, and this is great because it talks about specific segments or, um, storylines in the strip that might stick out to to some of the readers who longtime readers and you know miss othmar is sure. that whole sequence with linus is one of my absolute favorites because you know we all had that teacher we fell in love with as a kid and uh and i just i just love that whole sequence of stories uh, of comics with linus and miss othmar it's you'll great. appreciate this jeff do you know what the name of of our printer is at the schultz studio <laughs> i can't even guess it's miss othmar no. Yeah. <laughs> or a little, you know, the copier that we make all our copies on is, is Miss Othmar. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's nice to know. <laughs> nice. Right. Yeah. You know, and then there's it's just so many great things, and and it has a lot of memorabilia photographed. You know, just the way that only what necessary by a chip kid has all that memorabilia too. But it's sort of snuggled in and around. Uh, you know, segments on the Red Baron and whatnot. Right. I love that music box. I remember seeing that music box, and I wonder. It makes me wonder if I had one of those. Uh, Snoopy on the little yellow music box. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. That's great, and uh, all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it's different when it was connected to the strip. You, it was so rare to see those kinds of things, but now it seems to have its own kind of existence. That the know, ephemera, the ephemera. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, I am. I was excited that you know there's a section called awards and honors, and you can get uh, a close up of the Rubin Award. But I'm also okay. happy that we got the uh, L.C. Seeger Award that was honored to Schultz in 1980. And it's just a neat kind of, you know, for again for us cartoon heads who know you know yeah, Popeye and Seeger, it's sort of uh, it's just kind of neat to see what that looked like, which cool. is all all at the museum. But to have it you know in the book too is is neat. It's just, yeah, it's very, very cool. There's a lot of great stuff here, and it's a really nice way to celebrate the 70th anniversary. But it's also, if you want, like you just said, I think if you want to introduce someone to the comic strip and what it was all about and why it's, you know, as loved and and uh, impactful and uh, why cartoonists talk about it all the time, it's really a great book to do that with. And, uh, you know, it's also the kind of thing you pick up, like I picked it up. Uh, I have this wonderful preview copy, and and I pick it up periodically while I'm working or taking a break from work, and just flip through and read. It. And it's you can read a whole section in a couple minutes, and you've you know learned something and about the strip. And uh, that Seeger Award's great, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They did a really nice job of just of uh, 
writing succinctly and it's got a nice uh, voice. And uh, I'm also just it's interesting because everybody comes to Peanuts with something different or their own point of view. And to see what, you know, what Simon wanted to highlight um, versus other things is 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 neat because those are that's important to to show um, all the different facets and how it touches different people. Like, for instance, uh, I really like, I think it's earlier in the book, but it's um, Proud of My Record Collection. That's just a neat spread. Uh, and it talks about um, music penis, but more specifically just like, you know, Schroeder's love of Beethoven and, and how records were visualized in the strip. And that's just kind of a neat um, thing because I never would have, thought of that as something to like oh yeah schultz did that he he, you know he had his own record collection he was always listening to music while he did the strip and and to sort of see that manifested in a book was really cool oh absolutely and uh i always love the way records show up and comics always show up in um Mm -hmm. peanuts you know because again as a comics kid as as you know one of those kids who loved comics and going to the the uh drugstore in those days to buy comic books and looking at the comics rack and uh, it's just you know it coincided with my own experience and my own wants and desires as a child right and the same thing was true with records our record players were just like um violet has here in the strip from 1953 it was a little hi-fi you know with a little (laughs) turntable and the speakers built in and it's no bigger than you know it's like maybe the width of an LP, you know, which is what, 12 inches or maybe something like that. And, uh, and you pick up the needle and put it on the record, you know, and, and as kids, records were unique and very special kinds of things. I didn't get a lot of records when I was a kid, but I just loved that experience, you know? And, and one of the things I, I love this image of Charlie Brown and Patty sitting on the floor, right? This very modernist fifties, 60s um you know home suburban home and they're just sitting as kids sitting on the floor and you know which is yeah that's we, we used to sit on the floor a lot yeah right. and they're surrounded by these the eames chair and all yes, these. yes i know it's so really cool chairs that and charlie brown's like what in the world is a rocking chair i know it's so cool you know but again it, it's part of its era right and yeah time and uh it really reads really beautifully. I love seeing that stuff. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful book for those of us who are old fans, too, because it just sort of picks little things out here and there and reminds you, you know, makes you want to go back and read, you know, the Fantagraphics collections or whatever collections you happen to have around, you know, just to get back into it again. I go through these things with Peanuts like I do with Beatles records, you know. Uh, there are periods where I, I just read it constantly. And then mm-hmm. there are periods where, you know, you read other things and then you go back to it again. It's always the thing that I return to as my, the foundation, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, uh, it's just, this is a great book. And uh, it's, it's really kind of amazing to think it's been 70 years um, since yeah. the trip debuted. But boy, a lot has happened since then. So. Maybe not so strange. Right. So, you know, Lex, you have um, a Kickstarter and you have a new book coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of books, uh, I just finally wrapped uh, the fourth book in my Kid Beowulf series, um, which uh, takes twin brothers Beowulf and Grendel into, the, uh, into ancient Italy. And it plays around with the foundational Roman myths 
And I'm really jazzed about that. Well, you know, we talk about earlier things that always take longer than you want them to, but mm-hmm. just finally closed the book on the book. Yes, uh, like last book. Yeah. week, finished fin- finished the the final lettered page, and um, and it's and I've been releasing it on Patreon and 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 on on Comicsology, but the Kickstarter, which people can find at um, newkidbbook.com is is to sort of just help fund the the final printed form. So if you want a graphic novel, this is a place that would that would that would manifest. Um, and uh, and so yeah, just uh, I don't know if it's the best time to do a Kickstarter in the during a worldwide worldwide pandemic and and yeah. what we hope is not the end of democracy <laughs> taking place. I know right. there are lots of other more pressing things. Um, so it's it's just to. Uh, but it's there, and if and if you enjoy my work, you can go and you can uh, give it give it uh, a look and and see if it's to your liking. Um, so we'll see. Well, I have to say, I read the first chapter, which um, you graciously provided me as a prep, and um, I, you know, it's the same thing. This is true of all your work. It, you you have a way of writing a story that just draws the reader in. And, uh, you know, it's captivating and is, I've read 30 pages of it and I'm just like drawn in, you know, I want to know what happens next. And I think it's, it's a testament to the, to the quality of your writing. You make it seem easily easy, but you know, obviously we all know it's not to particularly to take some, you know, history and myth and combine it together and make, uh, a story that is as accessible, both in terms of the artwork and in terms of uh, the storytelling. It's just really a rare gift. And, and the, it's a terrific, really terrific chapter. And I'm sure the whole book is really great. And wow. um, Well, I really appreciate that because because it's that's what we do it for. You just, you know, just want to tell a good story. That's like yeah. first and foremost, what is most important to me is 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 that so to hear yeah. that means a lot and and um and you've made my day so thank you for <laughs> taking the time to read it uh because you know as a creator you just you just want to you know write a good story and hope, and hope that it resonates and it does you know and it's it's really it's just like i said uh, you know i was captivated really from the first couple of pages and it it reads like you know like a breeze it just was wonderful and uh and i can't wait to find out what happens next and um i really hope folks will go to to kickstarter and check out you know lex's book uh and chip in whatever you can afford on whatever level you know i'm sure there are some really great rewards and um that's kickstarter.com slash uh, well, actually, I've, there's uh, the easiest direct route. They could go to my my website, kidbeowulf.com, which has a direct oh. link. And then um, I there's a specific dedicated website, oh, okay. which is um, newkidbeebook.com. Newkidbeebook.com. Um, and that takes, yeah, and it takes them right to the to the page. Okay. Um, so that's the cleanest cleanest way to do it. Okay, so uh, folks, make sure you do that, you know, because it's a really terrific book. And if you've been following, you know, uh, the story of Beowulf and Grendel uh, in Lex's work beforehand, here's that continuation. And each book just gets better than the last. And uh, so I, I, I think it's wonderful. And it's particularly for those of you who love Bone. Uh, it's along those lines in terms of storytelling and in terms of, and in terms of really, you know, the quality of the writing, you know, uh, Jeff Smith has that quality 
as well, where you, you're just drawn into the story and it has its own momentum. And this is true of Lex's work in this new book, too. It's really it's got that kind of accessibility and that that just sort of momentum that that carries you through the story in an exciting way. And the art is also um, one of the things I like about the art. It's breezy. It's light. Uh, it, it has an openness. You know, there's for adventure story art, it's really kind of rare that you see a kind of cartoony approach. But Lex has got this cartoony approach that is both, it's got qualities of Jeff Smith's work. It's also got, uh, I think the Schultz influence really comes through as well. Oh, as, you think? Yeah, sure. I, I definitely do. There's something in terms of the line quality. There's a kind of uh, improvisational kind of quality to your drawing and to the formation of your characters. But I think just... It doesn't look like peanuts, but there is this kind of quality that that Schultz has. The warmth of the line, I think, is evident in your work, and um, and it also, of course, makes me think of Asterix, you know. Mm. And so those influences really kind of, I think, they're all there, while none of them is like standing out. It still reads as Lex Fajardo. It doesn't. Well, that's, I, I appreciate that too. It's like what we said earlier. Your your style manifests what, in everything you can't do. So I can't do any of those. So this is what you get. So <laughs> yeah, but it's great, and and you know it really works. And I think for particularly for kids who are interested in just a good adventure story uh, that has elements of comedy as well as elements of danger, and it's got a little bit of history in it. You know, and that world comes alive, you know, that world that you're detailing, you know, uh, what what period of time are we talking about? Um, this is this is uh, so they meet Beowulf and Grendel meet Romulus and Remus. So it's right. it's uh, that mythic legend time of of Rome that that and there are so many different foundation stories. But that's the one that I was really drawn to with, you know, the the great she wolf and and um, and so I'm mixing those elements in and. And then the famous story of the abduction of the Sabine women. I'm sort of doing my take, and um, and the 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 spark of the story is really you know there's Beowulf and Grendel, but there's this new character who I've developed, a young girl named Tarpeia. Um, the title of the book is called the Tarpeian Rock, which was this this place in in Rome that they flung all of the um, traitors and and people who betrayed Rome were flung from this rock and it was given this name, uh, the Tarpeian Rock, because it's named after this this young girl who, uh, one of the origin stories is that she let the rival Sabine tribe into the gates of Rome and she was, because um, they said, hey, we'll give you these jeweled armbands if you let us in and they she opened the gates, they trampled her and then, and then the Romans flung her from this high cliff that has borne her name ever since. Okay. And I've often thought that that's, that's a pretty grim story, uh, and also Tarpeia is sort of always given short shrift as as this class as as a lot of women in classical antiquity are. So sort of like there's got to be more more to this than just that. So I really wanted to dive into what who she was perhaps as a character in my in my own retelling, and then also the relationship between Romulus and Remus because that is one of those weird origin stories that ends in a fratricide. And what is yeah. that about? And right. and really kind of digging into like why would these two brothers come to blows? And so, you know, in in the ancient stories and the myths, it's sort of all encapsulated in one short paragraph. But like, now I'm teasing that paragraph out in my origin and, and really want to dive into 
the the twin brothers relationship, um, which will be mirrored in what happens with Beowulf and Grendel, and also Tarpeia and who she is. And so um, those are all the different elements that are coming together in this story. That's great. And, and, um, and, you know, it's so what's amazing is that you can take all of that tragedy, you know, uh, and turn it into something that is, you know, I mean, it's not the kind of thing, at least so far, that is going to give, you know, any kid who's reading it nightmares, you know, it's, um, but at the same time, uh, there's a kind of quality in the, in the writing that makes it accessible to an adult as well. So, you know, I don't know how you handle something as grim as some of that that material is, but the way you handle the rest of the material is in such a way that it's appealing, you know, as a story and as imagery uh, to myself as an adult and and I think also to people, you know, the age group, uh, the tween age group, you know, 10, 11, 12, uh, all the way through you know, teen years, I think it's appealing to that as that age group as well, without being the kind of thing that's going to give a younger kid nightmares. Um, yeah, I hope so. That's, um, I definitely don't want to scare my readers, but I also want to just give them a full mm-hmm. story. And, um, and, you know, I'll point them back to the reader, to the original source material and, and also, um, you know, give them a satisfying tale on, on their own. Um, yeah. So we'll see. I think I, you know, it's, it's grim stuff, as you say, um, but a lot of these old stories were. So it's it's yeah. uh, that's also, you know, as a as a writer, playing with those with those themes or something. I've always liked like the naughtiness, you know, the, you know, the, K N O T T I should say uh, of that, you know, un, unraveling and unspooling and like digging into like what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and uh, obviously, you know, history and mythology is filled with so many. Avenues that we can travel down that um, as as writers uh, that have what you know just great potential for deeper stories and and uh, why not explore that a little bit? So I think it's kind of cool that you're exploring her her life. Um, her name is Tarpeia again. Yeah, Tarpeia. Um, yeah, so you're exploring her life a little bit more uh, than we've had the chance to do before, right? So pretty cool Uh, so how long is the kickstarter running for so it's a it's a 30-day campaign uh we just launched it last week and uh you know it's coming in in drips and drabs and you know you're always kind of waiting for that it's such a nerve-wracking experience every time i uh, this is the third one i've done and every time i do one i'm like i'm not going to do this again why would i why why would i do this again it's 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 nerve-wracking and and um and there's that that notion that we talked about earlier about you know the the quality of one's work is only tied to the to the amount of money it makes, and that's yeah. that's just awful, <laughs> to, to, you know, to to deal with. So the the the, <laughs> the accomplishment of of finishing this book that that you know I, last week, uh, and then rolling right into the Kickstarter, I was trying to like get some momentum. So the high of of accomplishment paired with the oh man, nobody's seeing this thing. It's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a seesaw. Um, yeah. But uh, but regardless, it's you know, well, it's uh, I'm very proud of the book. I think it's really one of the better ones, and um, and it's just fun to 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 get that done. And this is the next sort of phase of it. So yeah, it'll run for 30 days. Um, people can take a look at uh, 
as I said, newkidbebook.com or just go to my website or I'm, I'm posting about it on social media for whatever that's worth. Uh, and um, yeah, just spread the word. Uh, if you have, if you, if you know readers in your life who like bone and Asterix, you know, they might like this too. Yeah. Um, so I know the other books were published. Uh, had a, You had a publisher. Do you have a publisher for yeah. this one? No. So that's the big change. So Andrews McMeal published the first uh, volumes one through three, and yeah. they're still available, and I'm making them available on the Kickstarter. Uh, and, you know, I pitched them book four, and they were like, no, we're, just, we're okay. We're just going to keep the first three, which mm-hmm. is, you know, they're making them available in print still, which is which is I appreciate. And they certainly helped to, to get, you know, uh, my series of footing, mm-hmm. but the publishing is tough. And if you're not something like Phoebe and her unicorn or big Nate or peanuts, if you're not hitting those numbers, yeah. they're not going to help you hit those numbers, you know? So, yeah. um, so that's, you know, that's just the name of the game. Uh, I, and I knew that going in. And so, uh, but I still want to continue the series, you know, I sure. still really like these characters. I still have a story to tell. Well, yeah, look at all, you know, I mean, uh, I have to point to some some of the others who were doing it. And, you know, Steve Conley, you know, was published sure, all in yeah. the middle age uh, by himself. And that book is just extraordinary. Uh, yeah, it's well. great, yeah. It's similar kind of stuff, um, actually within the same genre kind of thing. And I think that audience would migrate over to, you know, your work as well. Um, because it is kind of similar flavor in a sense, you know. We uh, both have talking swords. I don't yeah, know. talking nope. swords. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And and but the same same kind of levity, you know, coupled with serious danger. You know, it's funny. It reminds me so much of. And I have the same tendency in my own stuff to be funny and all that kind of stuff. Um, the book I did many many years ago called Doctor Speck was similar kind of thing uh, in the sense of humor and it always points me back to Roy Crane and people don't talk about Roy Crane too much but if you've ever read Wash Tubs or Captain Easy that whole mixture of adventure and comedy mm-hmm. uh, is really really debuts in that strip in terms of comics and it's it, he, he it's just such a wonderful there's a lot of that in what you do there's a lot of that in what Steve Conley does it's in my work uh, you know, it's it's really the it's one of those influences that is covered up by other things that have come after that were influenced by it. You know, and uh, it's it's something to think about uh, the way that that work kind of has the ripples from Wash Tubs and Captain Easy has floated out. If you've never read it, you really got to check. No, it. I will. I've I've certainly heard of Crane and and the, the strip, but I've never sat down and read it. So I will definitely. Well. There's a big chunk of wash tubs in um, the Smithsonian collection of comic strips. There's okay. also a collection that came out a number of years on wash tubs in black and white. Um, and I don't think I don't know who the printer was, the publisher was anymore. I have a, it's out in my library, but my library is a mess right now. Um, and then uh, then Fanographics came out with the Captain Easy Sundays. And those are, I would have to say those are wonderful, but they're not as good as the black and white daily wash tub stuff was. Um, anyway, it's all, it, it's really great though. It's got this rollicking, you know, fast paced adventure story with lively characters and, um, you know, a good fist fight here and there and um, laughter along the way and villains and comic villains as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, that stuff is just so fun. I love, I love that 
of doing that that kind of thing. It's just yeah. uh, and and the characters just move from you know your lead ones move on from one place to the next and and uh, they meet a whole new cast of characters and yeah. and get into trouble along the way and and um, and learn a little something and and then move on. Um, yeah. Yeah. The one the one thing I'll say is is you know uh, there's kind of a bittersweet quality to, to finishing a, each book because by the time I get to the final page, uh, all these characters, you know, Bale from Grendel notwithstanding, all these new ones who I've created, um, I finally know how to draw them and I know exactly what they would do in any given situation. And then I got to leave them to go on to the next, you know, the next story. Um, and it's like, uh, yeah, always all something to, to that I that I'm always a little sad about. Yeah, because Beowulf and Grendel go on. Mm-hmm. And you continue to draw them, but all the surrounding characters are going to change in the next story. Right. right. Wow. Yeah, that is, I, I can understand that. It is hard. But, you know, I've had these things, the same, same kind of thing when I've left the comic strip. Um, plastic baby heads, I was happy to leave, really, after a while, because there was a lot of bittersweet stuff. But then um, I went out to do this thing called Jetpack Jr. And Jetpack, the characters in Jetpack, the couple who are raising Jetpack, Marsha and Hank, I drew them for a while and I really got to know them as a couple and I really liked them a lot. And then I took them and put them in their own strip, which didn't go any place. Nobody was interested in that. Um, but I loved drawing those characters and uh, they were kind of fun. And then, you know, you get to know them after a period of time, after a number of years. And then I know exactly what Charles Schultz meant when he, he said at the end of his life, you know, Linus, Lucy, Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, how could I ever forget them? You know, right. And and it's true. We come to love our characters a great deal. You know, they mean something to us. They're people we've come to know and love. Mm-hmm. So saying goodbye to them is always hard. Right. But right. Yeah. Well, you know, I I really hope you do well with the Kickstarter um, because I think the book needs to be printed and needs to be out there uh, in bookstores as well as you know online. But I hope also that you find a way of manifesting it online. So you know. Uh, people will see it there too um yes you know. yeah yeah it definitely it, you know it, it, for folks who like digital comics i've been releasing it on comiXology in oh, issue okay. form okay and um there are about four issues out and and the the next two will come out before year's end it was very important to me in, one of my goals for 2020 was to get the book out in some yeah. iteration because i've been working on it for a while and so you know I have Patreon backers who've been reading it digitally, episodically. Um, that will continue through the year. So the so the Kickstarter is is for that physical, final physical form, which is really you know when I started the book. That's I'm always thinking in in terms of the printed material. Um, sure. And uh, but you know it, to survive in this day and age, you have to sort of put it out in all these different iterations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for those who who enjoy digital stuff, you go forth and and enjoy it. It's there. Um, and for those who just want to read it in one big solid chunk, that's what the Kickstarter is for. So on Comixology, have, have you done okay with it there? Uh, you know, my stuff is niche of a niche of a niche. It's yeah. great that it's that it's there, and I like to 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 produce them as as issue form. Mm-hmm. And all my other stuff is is there, and it's it's uh, and it does widen the audience. Um, okay. But um, I mean, it's not yeah. a great source. Yeah, you know, I. I Andrews McMeal did Plastic Baby Heads as a series of ebooks. Oh yeah. And, you know, uh, this was 2013. 
and I don't know why they honestly I don't know why they did it because they don't do anything for their ebooks they just put them out and nobody knows they're there and nobody buys them and I always found it kind of self-defeating in a way so every now and again like every year I'll get a check for two dollars and fifty cents <laughs> right you know what I mean yeah and and, and I don't know what I don't know I'm happy they're there I'm happy that they saw fit to do something with them I don't know why they did though um I really don't it blows it's one of those things you know it's like why why do this and so I've often wondered you know e the ebook in general has not been a trim is successful phenomenon and I wonder no. as people thought yeah. it was going to be and um because like I have a collection of Dickens on my Kindle you know for two dollars and 98 cents I bought some my wife bought me some time ago Mm. And I'd much rather read Dickens in paperback or hardcover form, you know. And yeah. I think in yeah. general, people feel that they they like to read their books, you know, uh, well, as an object. object. Yeah, right? exactly. You want to hold it. You want to you want to feel the paper. Uh, yeah. I do get digital comics. Actually, Comicsology is terrific for a lot of European BD stuff that mm -hmm. they've been translating, and so oh, I do okay. find um, that is a great way to get books translated from france oh. and spain and, and elsewhere Very so i recommend cool. it for that yeah um but yeah ultimately and the other the other problem is you know space you know yeah you can't keep okay. adding although that's what i've been doing during the pandemic i keep buying more and more books so uh, <laughs> that's a good thing yeah my, uh, same here we we i have so many books it's ridiculous but i can't help it i love them you know right, right. It's, yeah it's guilty pleasure uh, it's it's a distinct experience, you know, from reading online. But I enjoy reading online. Uh, I, 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 but in terms of when I'm going to sit down to read a comic, yeah, I, I want to hold it in my hand. And, right, uh, right. So uh, I hope that yours, your fourth book, makes it to print because uh, I want to read that in my hand too. So you and me both, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Great. <laughs> well, wow, Lex, it's been incredible. Uh, yeah, it's always fun to come up on on your show and just talk comics. Uh, I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to um, to to do that, to talk about the Kickstarter, and then more importantly, talk about just all these great cartoonists and comics that we love. You know, uh, the conversation just can go off in all these different directions, and I thought today would be limited just to you know talking about Charles Schultz and the 70th anniversary and and your own book and yet we we you know there's all these other things that come into the mix when you start to talk about those things and uh it was always such a pleasure to talk to you lex because i just feel like we connect you know and uh, maybe it's because we come from the same place uh originally i don't know if that means anything but uh, <laughs> you know there there is that kind of connection there and it's in uh, the water it's in the water, right? You know, Rod Serling had it too. So exactly, you know, Rod Serling and Twilight Zone, and that. So we understand. Have you ever seen that episode, by the way, the Twilight Zone episode that is, um, that is, his uh, memoir of Binghamton. Uh, a, which one is that? Oh man, it's it's. Uh, Was it the one with the carousel? It opens yeah, on this guy who yeah, who comes yeah. across. He's like yeah. his his car needs work on and and. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Beautiful story. Yeah. It's great. Great. I'll, you know, anyway. Little uh, known fact. So when, when my my folks were, when we were moving from the Midwest to Binghamton, mm -hmm. um, my parents were looking for homes and mm -hmm. they 
Rod Serling's childhood home was for sale, and oh, we almost bought it for some reason. For whatever reason, we just we decided to get something else. But what my parents were telling me was like, yeah, it's Rod Serling's home, and there was a trap door in the house somewhere. Yeah. So I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does make perfect sense, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. what a trip. Yeah. Anyway, well, you know, uh, great writers come from this area, I guess. You know, Rod Serling and Lex Fajardo. I mean, it's great. <laughs> and I, 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 what I mean is that it's true. You've got away with words, and you know, and and okay, Serling had a certain kind of success, but man, you're doing some nice stuff with your books too. So. Well, I really appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks, thanks again for for having me on, and and. I look forward to the next uh, conversation. Me too. Oh, it's great, Lex. Take care. All right. Take care, man. Okay. There you have it then, Lex Fajardo and myself. And wasn't that great? Lex is just a, a great guy to have on the show. It's wonderful where the conversations go. It's because we love comics, and that's the thing, you know, is, is when there's a guest on who loves comics and, and Schultz and Peanuts and then all kinds of other comics too it's really it's just great to 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 talk and just to talk comics and uh, see where that conversation goes and lex is just uh, you know so well informed and so insightful and uh, i i think that's one of the things that makes him such a great addition to the schultz creative studio and to comics in general and once again do what you can head on over to newkidbbook.com that's newkidbbook.com two b's right kidbbook.com okay do what you can to help support that kickstarter let's get that off the ground and get that fourth book in print because i want to see it so uh, i'm looking forward to seeing it and i bet you you are too if you love comics you want to see this book in print newkidbbook.com Lex Fajardo. Can't wait to have him on again. Uh, Anyway, so I want to welcome a new Patreon supporter uh, over at my Patreon, patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. And that's Roger Fleming. Roger Fleming. Hey, Roger, thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Roger is on Instagram with a wonderfully, you know, a a touching, funny, uh, interesting comic called Hey Nice Comic. You can find it on Instagram at Hey Nice Comic. That's on Instagram at Hey Nice Comic, one word. But it's a wonderful strip. It's got a really unique look to it. I think you'll, you'll like it. And lately, he's been doing a really interesting series of auto bio uh, comics. So check that out, okay? And I want to thank Roger again for his support. And I've gotten some nice notes lately about the show and what it means to some of you who listen to it while you work. And I really appreciate that. This show is done for you. And it's done for me, too. I always, uh, I did the show, I have to tell you, uh, because I wanted to listen to something like this. And uh, and I couldn't find anything other than Comics Lab, and uh, which I love, which is a great show. Uh, but I also wanted a little bit something else, and, and originally a little something focused on Charles Schultz and maybe comics history, not so much about the making of comics. And... Uh, and our feelings as cartoonists about those things. So that's how this show came about, and I've been doing it for two years now and really enjoying it. And what's great to know is that you enjoy it too and that it's meant something to those of you who, who've you know reached out to tell me so. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It, you, it makes it worthwhile. That's what I'm doing it for because we love, we love what we do and we love comics. So... Yeah, you can uh, help out the show uh, by heading on over to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. 
I am accepting your your support at that location. Uh, it goes towards helping the show stay afloat, helping me uh, do the research that I need to do for the show periodically. I have to buy some books and uh, some recording equipment here and there and pay for the uh, the hosting service for the show. So it, all of that goes to this, and I really appreciate that support. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated. It uh, means a lot, particularly in these times when I know Money is not easy to come by for so many of us. You can follow me on Instagram at Jeff Grogan. Okay. At, or I'm sorry. <laughs> See, I can't. This is why I'm terrible at social media. I can't remember what the heck my addresses are. At Grogan Jeff. Let's see if I can spell it this time. G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Yes, I did it. Okay. At Grogan Jeff. Uh, on Instagram. You can follow me there. If you want to reach out to me, that's a great place to message me uh, on Instagram at Grogan Jeff. If you uh, want to do snail mail, you can find my contact info on my website. That's jeffgrogan.com. You can write to me through there also. Uh, and I do reply to your missives and notes and whatnot. I really appreciate it again. Uh, yes, and you can also follow my comics on at Spiking the Lens uh, on Instagram. And uh, so check that out too because I am publishing the comic and only the comic and maybe some little other things. I've been doing Jacktober, the uh, Jack Kirby variation of Inktober uh, on Instagram at spikingthelens.com so, or at spikingthelens rather on Instagram. So you can follow that there. I hope you're doing one of those, whether it's Inktober or Jacktober or, or whatever other Tober there is. It's a lot of fun. It's a great challenge. And it's a great inspiration to do a drawing every day, right? Uh, keeps our hand loose and limber and sharpens up those cartooning skills. And, uh, boy, I think one of the things you find out when you start to do that is how good the originals are, you know? And uh, it's wonderful to draw Jack Kirby characters. Uh, I'm a, as those who know me know, I'm a big fan of, of Jack Kirby. Uh, I think my two big touchstones are, are Kirby and, and Charles Schultz. And uh, Kirby has meant so much to me in my life. And so it's a great thrill to sit down and draw a Kirby character every day for a month. Uh, it's a challenge, too, because sometimes it's hard to do a drawing like in 40 minutes or something, uh, you know, that is worth sharing. And uh, so check that out, okay? At Spiking the Lens on Instagram. At the end of the month, I am going to have the author of this wonderful new book on Charles Schultz, The Peanuts Book. Simon Beecroft will be here to talk about that book and how it came together and Charles Schultz and Peanuts, of course, and to help us continue the celebration of 70 years of Peanuts. Maybe this will be a year-long celebration. What the heck? Why not? Okay. And uh, so Simon Beecroft will be here at the end of the month to, to talk about the Peanuts book, and if you haven't gotten your copy, rush right out and do that, because it's a wonderful coffee table book I think you'll enjoy, and a great introduction to the comic strip for all ages, so uh, check that out. Plus, it's got, for those of us who are longtime fans, it's got some interesting tidbits of information throughout. I really enjoyed flipping through it and picking it up to read every now and again, so I think you will too, and it's a handsome book as well, really nice to look at. So Simon Beecroft will be here. Before that, we've got a nice show coming up, a wonderful show with Khalid Birdsong, who you may remember 
from um, my roundtable discussion about comics and race uh, back over the summer, Khalid and Ray Billingsley were here, and Khalid and I sat down and had a conversation of our own later on, not too much later on, so it's been sitting in the uh, you know the vault for a little while, and it's about time I got it out to the public. So that's coming up next. Khalid Birdsong of Fried Chicken and Sushi, which is on gocomics.com, okay? Look it up, follow it, Fried Chicken and Sushi. You're going to love that comic strip, too. So that'll about do it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show today. I hope you are well uh, wherever you are. I hope you're enjoying the wonders of this fall season uh, wherever you are. I hope it's as splendiferous as it is here. Uh, It has been a beautiful, albeit dry, fall, and uh, uh, the colors have been really wonderful. It's been the peak week here for colors in upstate New York, and uh, I just love this time of year. There's something really... Bittersweet, a little bit melancholy, but it's also, you know, just beautiful in terms of color. I love that smell in the air of, of the leaves on the ground, that fall smell. And, and then, you know, there's always raking the leaves and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, which I don't love. But anyway, uh, it's, it's great. Nice time of year, and I hope you're enjoying it wherever you are. Uh, having said that, I will say my so longs for now. Uh, be sure to check out the show next time. Be on the lookout for Khalid Birdsong sitting down with me. Uh, check out his work on Go Comics, Little Fried Chicken and Sushi. Be sure to look for that. It's also on Instagram and, uh, and it's on Facebook too. So Fried Chicken and Sushi by Khalid Birdsong. Again, Lex Fajardo, thank you for being on the show. NewKidBBook.com. Head on over there. Show your support. And... Uh, Oh, yeah, mine too, patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Thanks again for listening. Be well, be safe. I hope you are taking the precautions. And let's, I hope the next show comes out before November 3rd. But in the meantime, if it doesn't, vote. Get out there and vote. Do your patriotic duty. Uh, We have to move this country forward. And uh, so I hope that you will take that responsibility seriously. It looks like a lot of people are. So that's great. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening.